Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, June 29th, and today Dylan Byers is here to talk about MSNBC naming Alex Wagner as the replacement for Rachel Maddow in the network's most precious time slot. What does the hire say about the liberal network's direction heading into an election year? And later on, Ben Landy talks to Tina Wynn about the turmoil inside the Republican Party. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who is here to comment upon a new hire at MSNBC. Alex Wagner has been hired to basically replace Rachel Maddow, who's not leaving the NBC Universal world, but she's slowly backing away from her primetime anchor chair. What does this hire say to you, Dylan, about MSNBC's direction heading into the midterms, the next presidential election, and what their values are, what their point of view is? Well, I want to preface it by expanding on what you just said, which is Alex is great. And she is. And she's, she's incredibly smart very good on television. People who work with her really like her. I have been following her since my very early days as a media reporter. And uh, she used to have a daytime show on MSNBC that didn't necessarily move the ratings uh, for anyone, but um, that people in the sort of New York, D.C. milieu really liked. So she's great. But put that aside... There's a bit of all of this that kind of feels a little bit like waving the white flag for MSNBC. First of all, Rachel Maddow's departure was anticipated for a long time. And then when the the moment finally came, they didn't really have a replacement host for the four nights of the week. She wasn't hosting her show. And then finally, they select Alex Wagner, who, again, Alex is great. But the way this entire announcement has been packaged is leading by lowering expectations, right? The first thing you read, and in fact, the headline oftentimes, like the headline of the Vanity Fair piece that came out on this today, is we're not measuring her against Rachel Maddow. There's no way anyone can, can fill Rachel Maddow's shoes. Ratings aren't the metric by which we define success. And I understand that on multiple levels. One, I understand that 
we live in a multi-platform world where people are doing linear and streaming and, and podcasts and events and all of this other stuff. I also understand that ratings are not the only metric by which you gain revenue in cable news. You, you also do it just by the sub fees, the affiliate fees. All of that said, if you don't have really compelling programming that is like influencing the culture or at least the subset of culture that actually cares about cable news, what do you have? And at a certain point, if you're not fighting to win the ratings, you're getting down right now to numbers, January 6 hearings aside, you're getting down to numbers that are like some of their worst in a matter of decades, right? And so it's all good and well to say we don't care about ratings. But if the numbers get so low that no one is paying attention, then you don't really have any brand power. And so I look at all these announcements about Alex Wagner and saying, we're not trying to reach Rachel Maddow's ratings. And I ju- I can't help but just feel that Rashida Jones and MSNBC are somewhat admitting defeat here. The New York Times piece says, uh, Ms. We- Ms., sorry, New York Times style, Ms. Wagner's relationship with MSNBC goes back more than a decade. Starting in 2011, she hosted a show now with Alex Wagner, a weekday opinion show. It was canceled in 2015 as the network pivoted its daytime lineup more to straight news coverage and less opinion. And that just jumped out at me because I was watching MSNBC during the day, but it feels like the whole organization, every show is opinion or at least like news that is buttressed by progressive points of view. Am I wrong about that? And certainly, again, the reporters from NBC News who are on the field, you know, Garrett Hake and all, all these other great reporters that they go to, they feel like straight reporters. But then they go back to the host and the pundits and it feels like opinion all hours of the day. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is just a constant source of tension between the different fiefdoms of MSNBC, right? And so there is a daytime slot that is effectively NBC News, but the very vocal and outspoken opinion side of the network yeah, it exists in primetime, but it certainly encroaches across across dayside as well. And so you have this hard thing where you do have real reporters, like you mentioned, Garrett Haig, who are out there doing the work and you know, they could go on a show like, I don't know, Andrea Mitchell or Katie Turr or something. And they could feel very comfortable there. But once you start broadening out and you get closer to the to the nighttime hours, it becomes harder for them. And And, you know, I think there's a sense, OK, if we're pitching a package to perspective host, perspective programming, is our material going to be used in the service of making partisan points? And that's not really comfortable territory for a reporter to be in. And that's a tension that MSNBC and NBC News have struggled with more or less for the the entirety of MSNBC's existence. Just on on the viewership numbers, again, this is just cable. And I pulled up cable news ratings from a random recent week, June 13th. So this is total viewers. Fox News, any given hour of the day is number one. But you get into like, say, 3 p.m., CNN Newsroom, 585,000 total viewers. I know measurement is tough and some of the stuff is apples to oranges, but think about a podcast, think about like like a Joe Rogan or think about like all grass, no breaks on YouTube or like my Snapchat show reaches more people than, right. <laughs> than this by a lot. And it's just like, how are these places keep making so much money when the not that many people are watching? You could fit like these audiences into like two Rose Bowls and call it a day. So here's so right. So people in the in that business love to say it's apples to oranges, metrics are hard, whatever. 
It's actually not that hard. If no one's watching CNN, despite what Chris Lick says, that is a problem because you don't have a brand if no one cares about the product. However, CNN is somewhat secure insofar as it is still viewed as a sort of necessary piece of the cable bundle. So it continues to get those revenue from affiliate fees. And then as we move into streaming, whenever the day comes that cable news makes the the real jump to streaming, there's a sense that that could be a very valuable part of a streaming package because it it does turn out that during elections and, and coups and riots and wars that you still need a network like CNN. So fine. The reason that MSNBC on the left doesn't pull nearly the same numbers as Fox News on the right, there are several reasons, but one of them is Fox News has a real hold on that entire party and on and on a very large swath of the country. It is sort of the, as I like to say, intellectual or anti-intellectual center for the right. And yes, they have talk radio and, and you know, digital media and all that, but whatever. Fox News has a lot of influence. When you get over to MSNBC, you're competing with the likes of every other media outlet that people get their news from and the opinion pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times and NPR. And if you don't have a Rachel Maddow, what do you have? Because you're dealing with people who, like, aside from folks who are, you know, above the age of 65, don't really want to watch cable news all night long. And so I don't understand, you know, I don't understand a, what the business model is. And then B, if you can't really compete on the hard news stuff, like when Ukraine happens, do you really need to have MSNBC in the cable bundle? I think this is the problem. So I think the competitive landscape for them is harder. And I think if they don't have someone who they can really, really build a brand around and who's such an influential figure on the left, I think that that poses over time, I think that poses a real existential problem for them. I don't know if you've talked to Alex, but like one thing that I hope for that show, which gets to what I hope MSNBC can do, is I think a lot of MSNBC hosts, you don't see them traveling a lot, like covering campaigns and doing the nitty gritty. And I feel like that feeds this dynamic at MSNBC where you have a lot of hosts who live in a sort of like liberal cultural bubble, social media cocoon. And suddenly they wake up and Donald Trump's president or suddenly they wake up and Hispanic voters are voting for Republicans. And like, because Alex has been on the road a little bit, she hosted, helped co-hosted that show, The Circus on Showtime. And I just feel like that kind of reporting experience, just being out in the world, helps you understand that like, hey, not everyone thinks like us. Hey, to win campaigns, you have to persuade people. And I hope at least for her show, she can entertain certain progressive views and also challenge some of the received wisdom on the left and say, hey, cool idea, but this slogan, this candidate, this idea is actually not that popular with independents or Tejano voters. Yeah. And look, I mean, that is sort of the name of the game right now, especially as you see um, the the trend that I've written about that, that extends from CNN to the New York Times about like, how do we represent a broader swath of the country? Like, just being, you know, sort of a slave to partisan orthodoxy is not, it doesn't, it's not a very smart look in my mind. And I think Alex is probably much smarter than that. And like you said, has some experience being out there. I think the question again, though, just to bring this whole conversation full circle is that is all well and good if the conversation is so compelling 
that you incre- that you encourage a number of people who aren't really watching cable news right now to step up and watch cable news. But like, can you do that? Or does all the evidence suggest that especially in prime time, you need people who are loud, opinionated, distinctive icons of the left or the right? Um, That would suggest that that is the limited audience for which you are fighting in cable news in prime time. As a consumer of television, I really, really hope we can have these like much smarter intellectual conversations on both CNN and MSNBC. But all the evidence up until this point suggests that that is not going to rate well enough. And despite what Rashida Jones or Chris Licht will tell you, the ratings matter. Because if no one's watching, you don't have a brand. All right, man. Um, go find us another scoop. I'll do my best. Thank you, Peter. Welcome back. I'm Benjamin Landy, executive editor at Puck, and I'm here with Tina Wynn. We're doing something a little bit different here today, recording a special breakout conversation in response to the bombshell remarks that we just heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. She is the aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and she just wrapped up her testimony before the January 6th Congressional Committee on Tuesday afternoon when we're recording this. Tina, let's just jump right into it. What were the three biggest revelations here And then maybe we can also talk about what they mean for Trump. Sure. Uh, Just to preface this, as someone who's been covering the January 6th hearings for a while, covering MAGA, actually was there on January 6th, I've been always saying about the hearings is that what the committee needs to do in order to succeed in its goals of charging Trump with something is to establish causation rather than just correlation. The entirety of Trump world has been saying, oh, Trump just happened to be there on the day that these Oath Keepers were there. What Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony proves, however, is that there were moments where Donald Trump wanted to join the crowd at the Capitol and participate in the violence. The biggest type of ways that I could say, one, even in the event of people breaching the gates of the Capitol, he intended to go there. Two, when Secret Service said, no, you can't, it's too dangerous, He literally assaulted a Secret Service agent by trying to shove him out of the way and grab the steering wheel of his own presidential motorcade in order to take the car back to the Capitol. Three, he heard that there were calls to hang Mike Pence and the uh, vice president who was going to certify Joe Biden's election, and he didn't really care about it at all. And four, he knew that the rioters were armed and he wanted to participate in all of this anyways. That is causation. That is not these two things just happen to uh, hit at once. Yeah, I've got some of the quotes here. According to Hutchinson, Trump said, this is he's referring to the um, metal detectors. You know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing bags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing bags away. Leading up to January 6th, there were plenty of reports that armed Militia members such as the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys wanted to attend these million MAGA marches to show their support for the president. December or so, Oath Keeper leader Stuart Rhodes was saying, 
we can't bring guns into the District of Columbia. However, we will be stationed outside of the district in case something bad happens. Leading up to the rallying day of Enrique Tarrio, who was the leader of the Proud Boys, was arrested with a gun on him inside the District of Columbia where you're not allowed to carry guns. But if anyone was paying any sort of attention, you knew militia members were going to show up with concealed carry. And Trump must have known that as, you know, commander in chief who probably received all the intelligence. So for him to say, "Okay, I know these guys are armed. Let's just let them in anyway. That is a very bad sign. Tina, it seems like the word among Trump allies and the people in his inner circle right now, from what I'm reading and hearing, seems to be that this could actually constitute legal jeopardy for Trump in a more meaningful way than people supposed before. But also, perhaps more pressingly, this is all sort of a, might as well be a campaign commercial for Ron DeSantis, that this testimony really makes Trump toxic in a way that he wasn't a week ago. Right. And um, I've been speaking to a couple of Republican sources of mine, and they've noted that there's always been this weird balance in the Republican Party when it comes to Trump, which is his presidency was pretty good, I don't think we would like him back as president. And that seems to be a growing sense among Republicans. Yeah, we should also note that Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, until this moment, she at least appeared to be a true blue Trump believer. She's right there in his inner circle. She is privy to all of these conversations. She really does seem like a pretty unimpeachable witness. And while I'm sure that Trump's allies will come after her in various ways. It does seem like this testimony for that reason could be particularly damning to him. Absolutely. This is a storyline and an observation I've been following for quite some time. It's whether the MAGA movement and MAGA politics and MAGA policy was something that hinges on fealty to Trump or whether Trump was someone who stumbled across this political ideology and then just ran with it because he happened to be the guy in charge. And increasingly looks like it's the former. And this testimony, I think, is one data point in that line. Thanks, Tina, for coming on. I know you're working on a piece on this subject right now, which listeners can find on Puck.News as soon as it goes up. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 